0: Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckert. This podcast is independent and ad-free because of your listener support. Become a listener supporter by going to weirdhistorypodcast.com. Hello, everyone. How are you doing? I'm hanging in there. Uh, as you might have heard, the entire West Coast is on fire, which has been disruptive to the life of basically everyone who lives out here. And we're fine, not going to go into details, but uh, we are doing okay. Anyway, today's episode is not about wildfires or poisonous air or anything like that. It is about tennis. I talked to Sasha Abramsky. He's a journalist and writer who wrote a book about perhaps the first ever female sports star, at least in like the modern Western world, uh, Lottie Dodd. She was a tennis prodigy, she also played a bunch of other sports later in life, and we talked about tennis, the game of tennis, how it was played, and also what it meant to be a celebrity at the end of the 1800s and early 1900s, way before anything like what we think of as modern media. Uh, I really like episodes like this. I like slice-of-life history that focuses on quieter things besides just, you know, politics and war and disasters, though, given that we're living through a disaster time period right now, that's obviously also important. Uh, But yeah, thinking about this and reading about this was a lot of fun. By the way, um, when we recorded this episode, uh, we were in the thick of wildfires. Uh, I am in Portland, obviously, Uh, Sasha Abramsky was in California, and you can perhaps hear that in our voices. It was not ideal podcast recording conditions. Um, So if we sound a bit scratchy and hoarse, uh, that's why. Because we were both talking when it literally hurt to do so. Anyway, here we go. Okay. Sasha Abramsky, hello. Hey, how are you today? I'm doing well. Uh, Talking about your book, Little Wonder, about Lottie Dodd. And... I guess the first thing that I wanted to ask you was, this is a book about a a tennis star a lot of folks might not have heard about uh, in the late 1800s, probably the first female sports star in the Western world. And what role did tennis play like in her social milieu in the late 1800s? She's kind of a creature of the Victorian era. Um, What was the game like back then? No,
1: you're absolutely right. Lottie Dodd is a quintessential product of the late Victorian period. Um, She grew up in northern England, outside Liverpool, and her dad was a really wealthy cotton merchant. He basically imported cotton from America and made a fortune distributing that cotton to manufacturers in the British Midlands. And the wealthy elite in the late Victorian period spent a lot of their money on landed estates. And in those landed estates, there was a bit of a sports craze among people of a certain income in Britain at that point. And so they converted the grounds of their estates to basically sports grounds where they could play tennis, croquet, um, do horse riding, all kinds of things. And um, tennis was a new sport. Tennis had been invented by this very eccentric Indian Army colonel called Colonel wingfield clopton wingfield in the early 1870s um about the same time as Lottie dodd was born she was born in 1871 and it became a fad it became this sort of real sensation maybe sort of the equivalent in the last few years maybe pokemon where suddenly this thing (laughs) and you know all the kids are going pokemon hunting and a few years back it was sort of the same with tennis in the 1870s if you were a middle class or an upper middle class person in the 1870s and 80s pretty good chance that you were playing tennis. And that went for whether you were a boy or a girl. It was one of the few sports that girls had sort of equal access to. And so that's where Lottie Dodd came from. And you said she was a tennis star. She absolutely was. She won Wimbledon five times in a row, and she was 15 when she first won Wimbledon. But the thing that really intrigued me, the more I learned about her, the more I realized she was a sporting polymath. She was a tennis champion, but she was also a golf champion. She was also one of the best female mountaineers on earth. She was a champion ice skater, a tobogganist. She won an archery medal in the London Olympics in 1908. So pretty much any sport this woman turned her hand to, she became a a champion at. And it absolutely fascinated me, that story.
0: Yeah. So one of the impressions I got when I was uh, reading your book is that uh, you mention only in passing that it was kind of socially unacceptable for people of a certain standing or social class to have a job or go to work every day. So sports seemed like something to do, something to fill your time. You would need that fad to uh, as something that you woke up and did every day because it was, do you think it was maybe unseemly for somebody of that social standing to go to an office? Is that fair to say? the,
1: The sense I have of her parents is that they had done an awful lot to convert themselves into part of the British elite, and they, neither of them were aristocrats. They didn't have a title behind their name. They didn't have any sort of lineage of aristocracy. What they had was a lot of new money. And they used that money to buy status. And one of the ways they bought status was through leisure. And so they had four kids. Um, Lottie's parents had four kids. There was an older daughter called Anne, and there were two boys, William and Anthony. There was also a third boy called Philip, but he died when he was an infant. And then there was Lottie Dodd and all four of the children were homeschooled. They had governesses and tutors who were hired so that at their estate, Edgeworth estate, they could learn not just English and math, but they learned music. They learned art. They they were given a very cultured upbringing, but they also were all four of them fanatical sports figures, fanatical athletes. And they they had different things that they were good at. But all four of them were absolutely fanatical in their pursuit of not just athletic conquest, but adventure. And the fact that they all were independently wealthy. um, Lottie's father died when she was still a child. And he left all of the children enough money so that they wouldn't have to work. And so they went through their, certainly their early adulthood, but they went through much of their lives with enough money that they could basically do whatever they wanted and dance to their own tune. And they did. They they were all quite eccentric. They didn't really settle down in a conventional way. And they did dance to their own tune. Um, they ended up with a lot less money. After World War One. I, I think a lot of their investments headed south and they sort of stayed very precariously middle class, but I think at least in part it was an illusion. But none of them felt compelled to take on a paid salary job. And I think it liberated them. It allowed them to sort of become part of that category of very eccentric, late Victorian, early 20th century adventurers. And I'd include in that people like Ernest Shackleton, who kept going off to the South Pole, or some of the early efforts by George Mallory and others to climb... Mount Everest. The, these were people who lived by adventure. And Lottie Dodd, in particular, was very much a part of that social milieu.
0: Yeah, that's the impression I was getting. Like, you uh, compare her to Nellie Bly several times during the book. And that resonated. Somebody who, you know, just had the time and means and inclination to go around the world because it was something to do, which, I mean, frankly, sounds great. I would, I would love to be able to like live that kind of lifestyle. Uh, but you mentioned she meant she wins Wimbledon five times. What is her, what is her path to Wimbledon? How does she get there, and how is she received when she does get there? Well, her path to Wimbledon is when she's about eleven years old in eighteen
1: eighty two, eighteen eighty three. Her older sister Anne, who she played a lot of tennis with, they had um three or four tennis courts on Edgeworth Estate, and they played tennis all the time. And their friends and their relatives would come over and play tennis, and. By the early 1880s, there's an embryonic tennis circuit. It's nothing like the multi-million dollar international tennis circuit of today. But there are tennis tournaments all over the British Isles. And Anne starts taking her baby sister, Lottie, on the tennis tour. And Lottie, at the age of 11, starts winning tournaments. And she starts beating grown women who are 10, 15 years older than her, and the press takes notice, because there was a really vibrant sports journalism culture in Victorian England, and Fleet Street loved sports figures, and by the time Lottie Dodd was 12 or 13, a lot of articles were being written about her, and she was given a nickname, and her nickname was The Little Wonder, because she was this preternaturally gifted tennis player. And so the little wonder comes to Wimbledon in 1887 when she's 15 years old and she demolishes her opponents. There aren't that many of them. It's not like today where you have 128 players in the main draw. Far few players. But Lottie Dodd immediately rips through the competition and at the age of 15 years, 200 and something days, she wins her first Wimbledon. And she comes back the following year in 1888 and she wins it again. And then I think her mum basically says to her, time to take some time off. And her mum is a little bit of a sort of intimidating, domineering figure. And Lottie Dodd takes an enforced leave of absence from tennis for two years. And she comes back in the early 1890s. And she's still a teenager. She's still only 19. But she wins it again. And then she wins it again. And then she wins it again. So by the time she's 21 years old, she's won Wimbledon five times. And not, not only has she won Wimbledon, she's won every other tournament she enters. She, she never loses. I could only find one example in the entire time that she's on the tennis circuit that she loses a competitive tennis match to another woman. I also found these extraordinary examples in 1888 when she's 16 years old, and she's already a little bit bored with the female competition. It's just not quite there for her. So she challenges all of the leading male players on the circuit, including the Renshaw twins, who are these dashing characters, and they've won Wimbledon between the two of them. They've dominated Wimbledon in every championship in the 1880s. And in 1888, she challenges um, William and Ernest Renshaw, plus a couple others, and she beats most of the male players that she challenges that summer when she's 16 years old. So the press absolutely loved this story. They love the fact that she was so domineering on the tennis court. They love the fact that There was no challenge that she wasn't willing to do and to overcome and to conquer. And she becomes a real sensation. I mean, the the equivalent today would be someone like Megan Rapinoe. She becomes a real sporting and celebrity sensation in the 1880s and 1890s.
0: So uh, one detail that I think is, I don't know how to put this, not funny exactly, but maybe unusual for a lot of folks would be what these matches would have looked like and people like uh, people in this era were not competing in, te- in tennis in what we would consider modern sporting gear. <laughs> they were usually wearing much heavier, more layered clothing. And you mentioned that maybe one tiny advantage that she had is that she was wearing um, basically like lighter gear than other people. She was not like weighed down the way her opponents were.
1: Well, uh, up to a point. So. The female athletes in the 1880s, this is the high Victorian era in England, and women were expected to dress with not just a little bit of decorum, but a lot of decorum, and that would extend from whether they were at a debutante's ball or an audience with Queen Victoria, all the way down to whether they're playing at Wimbledon. And that outfit would have meant that a female player would wear an ankle-length dress but not just an ankle-length dress, it was a dress that would extend all the way up to the top of her neck and all the way along her arms to the bottom of her wrists. And it wouldn't have just been the dress, it would have been what was underneath the dress. They would have been wearing corsets. Now, if you can imagine how constricted an athlete's body is when they're trying to run around in a corset and a full-length dress, um, it's unthinkable. Now, Lottie Dodd's small advantage was when she was 15 and younger, she was considered young enough to not have to wear a corset. So the first time she won Wimbledon, she had more freedom of movement than her opponents because she wasn't literally locked in like that. But by the time she's 16 or 17, she's wearing the full gear. She is wearing a corset. She is wearing this full-length dress. She's wearing nothing resembling modern sneakers. She's wearing these very, very heavy leather shoes. And she's playing with nothing resembling modern equipment. She's playing with a wooden tennis racket that weighed nearly a pound in weight. And if you contrast that with today, when Serena Williams wallops the ball at 120 miles an hour, she's playing with a graphite or titanium racket that weighs about a quarter of a pound. Lottie Dodd was hitting with a racket that weighed four times as much and had strings that had almost no give. So the way that sports figures 100 years ago played their sports would have been utterly different from the way a modern athlete plays today. And it wasn't just the athletes. It was also what the surroundings looked like. If you, if you think of Wimbledon and the wonderful sort of stadium or cathedral of center court, or you think of the US Open, which is, you know, has been on these past few weeks, and the US Open in non-pandemic years has these great stadium that hold tens of thousands of people. Well, there was nothing like that in Lottie Dodd's time. There, there were these very rudimentary Stands that had been constructed in the 1880s and that were very squat. They they maybe rose 20 or 30 feet into the air and held a couple thousand spectators. But a lot of their spectators actually weren't in the stands at all. They were just standing around the courts. They were roped off from the players, roped off from the um, actual court grounds, but they were on the edges and they would rent out heated bricks. And they would sit on the heated bricks if they had a little bit of extra money. And if they didn't have extra money, they would just stand. And so they were very, very close to the players. And it must have been this incredibly intimate environment when Lottie Dodd was playing. And the players would surround her. And we know from press coverage at the time that as the years went by and as she became more of a sensation and got more of a fan base... They would scream out rhythmically, "Lottie, Lottie, Lottie," and they would do it again and again with this sort of crescendo of noise, because they absolutely loved this woman. She was a complete sensation back in the eighteen
0: eighties and early eighteen nineties. What was her relationship to her celebrity? Uh, how did she? Uh, do you have any inkling about what she felt about it, or you know whether or not it was a? <laughs> good or arduous or strange experience for her. Uh, what did she think of being so popular? I know she did not like her nickname.
1: She didn't like her nickname. Her real name was Charlotte Dodd and it was her family that called her Lottie. And um, every so often she would give a an interview and she'd sort of rather sniffily say, well, you know, I loathe the name Lottie. I far prefer being called Charlotte, but she knew nobody would call her Charlotte. She was stuck with her her nomenclature, to And I think she actually quite liked it at the end because it made her unique. You know, she she had this stardom. She was followed by people all over the world. She was written about in society journals and profiled in all the big newspapers, Uh, not just in England, but certainly in the United States, too. But if you go into the archives, you can find references to Lottie Dodd appearing in newspapers all over the place. And I think she had a very ambivalent relationship to that stardom. She certainly didn't shy away from it. She knew how to use the media. And this was not in an age of professional sports. It wasn't like she needed to use the media to get lots of endorsements or lots of money. It was never about the money. She, she, she never made any money from playing sports. But I think she quite liked being the center of attention. But she also, and this is probably similar to how many Hollywood stars are today or many sports stars are today, she also liked being able to get away from it. And I think she was at her freest when she was overseas. So she would spend the winters in the 1890s in a place called San Moritz, which was where a lot of the society elites from Europe and from the Americas would winter and they would play in the snow. There was no skiing yet then, but they would toboggan and they would ice skate and they would mountaineer and they would explore glaciers. And Lottie Dodd loved doing that. And she was very much a part of that society elite in the 1890s. But she also liked the anonymity that it allowed her to get away a little bit. And there were newspapers out in San Maritz that did follow her. There were expatriate publications and so on. But it wasn't anywhere near as all-encompassing as when she was in England playing tennis or playing golf, when she really had no privacy at all. Um, And I think the best way of understanding her is understanding what happened to her after she stopped playing sports. And she was at the center of the sporting world for 25 years, all the way through to 1908, but when she retired from sport, she retired in her entirety. She took up singing. She took up piano playing. She volunteered as a nurse in World War I, and she completely avoided the spotlight. Every so often, she would do an interview with a newspaper or a magazine, and someone would ask her, well, what do you think about tennis players today? And she'd say a few nice words about some of the contemporary stars and maybe critique some of the new styles or some of the new... Um, Monetary concerns of sports figures as the 20th century wore on. But I think she quite liked not being in the spotlight. And that contrasts very much with um, a figure like Babe Dickritson, for example, who was a generation later. And Dickritson in America loved being in the media spotlight. She loved films being made about her. She loved doing radio interviews. Um, Lottie Dodd was never a part of the electronic media world. She retired. Really, before cinema got underway, there's there's about 90 seconds of her in action at the 1908 Olympics and in 1926 at a prize giving ceremony at Wimbledon. But that's it. There's no films made about her. There are no surviving radio interviews. And I think the fact that she was around mainly before the onset of electronic media allowed her to sort of fade back into obscurity or anonymity and to become something of a footnote, even in her own lifetime. And I don't think she regretted that. I, I didn't get any sense in researching her life that she resented not being a celebrity into her old age. I think she was actually quite reclusive the older she got.
0: Yeah. Um, one of the impressions that I got uh, with the book was that I wondered, like, this person's very important to like the history of this sport. I don't really know a lot about tennis, but I'd never heard of her before. Uh, why not? And it seems that that was something that uh, was on purpose. Uh, nowadays, people talk about, you know, wanting, you know, records of you to be forgotten, wanting to, you know, possibly scrub your old social media or online presence, or, you know, have some way for search engines not to find you. Like there's a European Union law about the right to be forgotten and all that. But she seemed to live in a time where she could be one of the most famous people in her country, if not like the co- her continent in the world, and being forgotten was something that she could just kind of do, kind of fall into, which is jarring for a person in 2020 to read about. Not no, jarring, but it's
1: strange. Extraordinary. It's extraordinary, and you're not wrong when you say she was one of the most famous figures on earth. In the sporting world in England, she was as famous as any of her male contemporaries, and when you look at who was famous among female figures in England at that time, in the main, it was people who were famous because of their titles. So the most obvious example is Queen Victoria, who was the most famous human being on earth in the 1880s and 1890s. But beyond that, you had a bunch of very famous um, princesses and Baronesses and so on, but it was their titles that made them famous. Lottie Dodd was famous because of her accomplishments, because she was a grand adventurer and explorer. She was someone who would, you know, hang off mountains in the middle of winter in the Swiss Alps just because she could. She was someone who would hurtle herself down the cresta toboggan run even though no other woman had ever done so before. Again, just sort of for a dare, for a challenge. And this is how she approached life. And as I said, the media at the time absolutely loved it. But then they were actually quite willing to move on once there were new people and new adventures to focus on. And, you know, you talk about social media today and, you know, how sometimes people try and scrub their presence. But it's very, very difficult. Usually, once you're in the spotlight, especially for the length of time that Lottie Dodd was in the spotlight, you're going to remain there. People are going to be talking about you and about your accomplishments for the rest of your life. And Lottie Dodd actually managed to find a way to fade away a little bit. And she did so not by default, but I think she actually chose to do so. She chose to do the Greta Garbo and disappear from the spotlight. Um, And I admire that. I really do. I I read more and more and more about Lottie Dodd. And I realized that I could construct everything about her life in the first half of her life because she was in the news so often. But the second half of her life, it's much more impressionistic because she vanishes. And she made a very clear decision to vanish. And, um, you know, again, I I like telling the story. I've always liked telling the story of people who dance to their own tune. I think Lottie Dodd did that whether it was when she sought fame and fortune, or not fortune, fame, or whether she deliberately avoided fame. I think in both instances, she was living
0: life on her own terms. I don't want to give the whole book away. Uh, I know there are a few things we haven't talked about yet, uh, but is there anything that we haven't touched on that you want to briefly speak to?
1: Yeah, I think the other the other really fascinating strand of the story is the backdrop, what's happening in terms of how women are viewed in the public life in England, but not just in England, in, in much of the Western world, in the 1880s, 90s, and early 1900s, because if you think about it, this is only four generations ago. But even so, even though it's not a sort of vast distance removed historically, where women are today is so dramatically different from where women were four generations ago. If you think about the world Lottie Dodd was a part of. She grew up in a world where if you got married, which she never did, basically you lost all independent legal rights. So your property rights, your financial rights, your ability to use law law, law for um, going to court and so on, all of that vanishes and you become a sort of adjunct of your husband and you couldn't vote. There were... You, very few women who were in the public domain. It was only in the um, very late 19th century that the first few women were certified as doctors and as lawyers. And so the world that Lottie Dodd grew up in for women was so constricted and she found a way to create her own world and create her own career. And the backdrop against which she does so is this vast period of social change Uh, The suffragette movement is obviously the most obvious example, but it's not just the suffragette movement. You have the rise of the labor force, the labor movement. You have political turmoil in much of the Western world, and you have this fascinating historical backdrop at the end of which you see dramatic changes in the status of women. And what I was trying to do in my book is paint a picture of Lottie Dodd's life against that canvas, against that backdrop of really fascinating societal change, especially vis-a-vis the role of women in public life. Excellent. Uh, where can people find a book? All the usual suspects. You know, I always tell people, go to your local independent bookstore, but if you can't do that or your bookstore is closed, there's always Amazon or Barnes & Noble, but this book is
0: pretty widely and easily available. Excellent. Sa- uh, Sasha Bromsky. thank you so much for talking with us today. Oh, it was fun. Thanks for having me on. Thank you all very much for listening, and thank you to Sasha Abramsky for being on the show. Again, the book is Little Wonder, the Fabulous Story of Lottie Dodd. Go look for it at independent bookstores that appreciate your patronage. And go give us ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts and other podcasting sites. Give us stars, reviews, you know the drill. Uh, I am on social media. I am at Joe Streckert on Twitter, We are on Facebook, facebook.com slash weirdhistorypodcast. Thank you all for listening. Talk to you again very soon. Bye.